You're listening to Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Bob Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Well, let's see, for the first hour and a half is an author that we've been looking forward to talking to for several weeks, Dr. John L. Turner, M.D., who wrote Medicine, Miracles, and Manifestations, A Doctor's Journey Through the Worlds of Divine Intervention, Near-Death Experiences, and Universal Energy, published by New Page Books. A renowned neurosurgeon, Dr. John L. Turner, has throughout his medical career explored non-traditional healing techniques for his patients, including energy healing, chanting, and meditation, soul travel, and astral projection. His new book, Medicine, Miracles, and Manifestations, traces his spiritual quest and discoveries in the field of integral medicine. For 18 years, Dr. Turner, and that's older than some of you guys out there, <laughs> Dr. Turner served as the first and only neurosurgeon on the big island of Hawaii, performing life-saving procedures with a marginally trained staff and substandard equipment. Today, he is a consulting physician for the Hilo Pain Center in Hilo, Hawaii. Classically trained as a board-certified neurological surgeon at Ohio State University, that's where my son received his MBA, and Cleveland Clinic. He specializes in surgical correction of disorders of the brain, spinal cord, and nerves. Welcome to 21st Century Radio, John, Dr. John L. Turner, M.D. Well, thank you, Dr. Anonymous, and if you'd like, you can certainly call me Jack. That is the name that my friends call me. Okay, Jack, and uh, thank you to our mutual friend, Rosemary Clark, for connecting us, because... Um, uh, she's a person I pay attention to a lot. When she says, this is important, I know it's important. And it was really important, is important. At the heart of Jesus Christ's teachings is, quote, unconditional love, unquote. What is unconditional love? Well, Doctor, uh, that, I think, is the thrust of my book, although it may not be mentioned that many times. I think that's the end result. And I think that this is what we are here to do, uh, and I think in repeated incarnations we're striving to, to meet that goal, to understand and learn the true acceptance of unconditional love. Mm-hmm. I think once that can be obtained, if it can be obtained, we may be ready then for even higher levels of uh, evolvement, but I think uh, this is what we're at work on today, and the realization that we're all linked together, we're all as one. And we need to kind of wake up to save this planet, save ourselves, and uh, get on with things. And I see it happening. I see great movements taking place today, as I'm sure you do. And I think we're all starting to get this feeling of we've got to reach out to help those who need a hand and try to love each other. Absolutely. Well, I think that was one of the key teachings of of Christ's teachings was unconditional love. Uh, And it certainly had been distorted over the past eight years. Now, how might unconditional love serve as a healing factor? Well, uh, you mentioned Hawaii, and you mentioned the city uh, where I live, which is Hilo. The I's are pronounced like E's in Hawaiian language. And you may remember that our friend Rosemary Clark also lived here in Hilo with her husband, Gary Lyon. So Hilo is kind of connected with us today. Uh, The word aloha means hello and goodbye. But it's also intimately connected with the feelings of and uh, things regarding love. Uh, So it's very important. And think about it. If you love yourself and love others, uh, you're going to enjoy perhaps good health. There's so much to this I hope we can get into. And it has a lot to do with the existence of or non-existence of free will. Because perhaps this entire thing has been pre-programmed for us and we're following a script that, that we help to craft in a spiritual world. And... That uh, crafting was to lead us on this quest to understand this unconditional love and truly practice it uh, and forgiveness along the way, too. So it's all very linked together. Well, you must be psychic because that was my third question. You you know that everything we encounter was planned before birth, and all of it is designed to teach and lead us to an understanding of unconditional love. Please explain how you came to that important conclusion. I came to it uh, along with my journeys, I will have to call them, that started out with 
the psychic Edgar Casey, and then evolved, uh, led me to Hawaii, and uh, soon I realized that I was following a pre-programmed path because things were unfolding in such a spectacular manner. And in 1995, when I tried the computerized version of the I Ching, uh, the response I got to the question, am I on the right path, was to me phenomenal and suggested that I should start jotting down these experiences that were happening. And uh, they just increased in nature and led me eventually to a book by a Dr. Benjamin LeBay, L-I-B-E-T, called Mind Time. And in this excellent book, uh, Dr. LeBay describes his research into something called the Breitschaff potential. That's all one word, a German word, and what it is, it's an evoked electronic potential that, that Dr. LeBay picked up from the surface of the scalp using EEG electrodes. And he had a precise timing mechanism, Dr. Ronimus, in which his subjects could mark the instant they decided to make a movement that he taught them to do with their, let's say, their hand and thumb. And as they jotted down when they would initiate this movement, he found that he could pick up action potential signals uh, of the brain showing that this movement was already in progress a third of a second before the subjects consciously made the decision. Mm -hmm. So I came across that, and I and then I went a little deeper. There's a book I have in front of me now uh, devoted to this Breitschaff potential and all the experimental work, because nowadays MRI uh, recordings can show this activation in these areas of the brain. So then I began to think it, it is kind of programmed. Perhaps we, we're lagging a little bit. And fortunately for those people, like my mother, bless her soul, psychologist actually, always said when I tried to explain this to her that uh, this is ridiculous thought that it's all pre-programmed and no free will, because if so, a person could go out and do anything they, they wanted and not be blamed for it. Now, keep in mind, when she told me this, she was about 98 years old and had Alzheimer's disease and was doing her best and also had spent her life working with juvenile delinquents, so she's quite familiar with rough kids and so forth. So she didn't pay much attention to this, but there is a 200 millisecond, fifth of a second window in which Dr. LeBay found that we could modify perhaps what's already in progress if we're quick enough. Mm. Well, this potential that's recorded uh, that we lag behind, plus uh, the work of uh, Mr. Okichi, Okichi Okada, oh. a man who received this inner light and used it for healing, also uh, explored the spiritual world. And uh, he found that among the many levels uh, in the spiritual world, there is a place where we, with the help of others, craft the next go-round. And for this reason, he wrote a poem uh, after his enlightenment called The Way for Man to Live. And the last stanza uh, stuck with me because it said, Let us have the strength to bear with any hardship, any mistreatment, accepting it with a smile just as though it were nothing. And it took me two full years to... to really dig into that and find out how to reach that level. And I remember the exact day it happened. And it happened because I realized that if indeed everything, I mean, even our conversation today, Doctor, goes according to plan, then what uh, need is there to uh, be upset by anything that's upsetting or we might think is bad or evil or whatever? It's just part of the lessons we're here to learn. And we have to learn one and get on to the next one because it doesn't stop. Well, uh, I have about 45 questions. You're not going to get to most of them. This was perhaps one of the most important books I've ever read. Well, thank you. And the reason, of course, being is your sensitivity and opening up to this gradually is just when people read this, they will begin to understand that we're all on this quest, each and every one of us. We all have an important purpose in life. We all have an immortal aspect to our, uh, us, where human beings are not machines. And unfortunately, our media loves to tell us that, but I, th I think they're dead wrong about that. But again, in your chapter, A Man of Light, you introduced us to, is it called Makishi Okada, which you just mentioned a little earlier? Is that, uh, is it Makishi? Yes, Mokichi. Mokichi Thank you. Okada. Okada. Now, how did his teachings about plants and nature um, uh, and, and farming alter some practices at your hospital? The reason why I'm bringing this up because the best man at my wedding was the author of Secret Life of Plants, Christopher Bird, uh, who is, unfortunately has passed on to his great rewards. But 
but uh, plants. This was just what you accomplished it was extraordinary, and you did it so quickly. I, you know, and I think you did mention that you don't didn't think probably if it was on the mainland here that you would have been able to do it so quickly. But boy, what a difference it made! Well, perhaps on the mainland, Doctor Adamus, uh, we could still be holding this interview, but I might be uh, speaking from a psychiatric unit because. You notice there's a picture in my book uh, in surgery, letting this spiritual light energy flow from my hand after yeah. repairing a young man's brain injury. Yeah, we're going to have to arrest you for that. <laughs> well, <laughs> the, uh, if sorry. you look at that picture closely, the people watching are the head nurse and the scrub nurse, and they're watching me do that, almost sitting motionless for a period of uh, 25 to 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. And uh, no one questioned the use of the operating time for this. They were all interested to see how does this work as we're blending Eastern and Western medicine for the holistic and complete care of the patient. They had seen other things happen recently, and, and everyone was willing to uh, let me do this. Another reason was uh, you used the word renowned. I don't know if I would agree with that. I, I was the best neurosurgeon and the worst neurosurgeon, because I was the only neurosurgeon here. So they couldn't really grumble, grumble too much uh, lest I leave the island. So I pretty much could explore a lot of different things that perhaps would have taken me a longer time on the mainland to introduce. And Hawaii, being uh, very spiritual in nature and perhaps the remnants of the lost continent Lemuria, had a lot to do with opening up a spiritual uh, path for me. Uh, not to mention that there is this constant... Uh, uh, energy flow around here from the Kilauea volcano, which has been erupting daily since uh, maybe 1983. Mm-hmm. And it's not far from where I'm sitting now talking to you. I would say maybe a 30 to 35 mile drive from here. But it's constantly erupting, uh, adding new land, uh, uh, making this pervasive energy in this place. So it's a, a place to, to uh, learn and to let things evolve. But uh, I would like to share with you the story of how I came across The Secret Life of Plants and Okichi Okada and this healing with light. Uh, If I can go into that now, I'd like to try. I'll tell you what. Let's take our first break so we won't have to interrupt you so that we can have it because this is really important. And and we can't forget about those flowers and plants that you put in and made sure that they were just about in every hospital room. This is something my wife taught me a long time ago because plants really are something. We'll be back with our guest, Dr. John L. Turner, Medicine, Miracles, and Manifestations, a doctor's journey through the worlds of divine intervention. Hello, this is Edgar Evans Casey, the son of Edgar Casey, the famous psychic. This is 21st Century Radio, and I'm speaking with Dr. Bob Hieronymus. Dr. Jack, how did you discover the secret life of plants? Well, I'm, I'm so happy you asked me to discuss Mokichi Okada and Jorei, which is a Japanese word uh, which can be translated as uplifting of the spirit. And it has to do with healing with light. And since we and everything else we can see, feel, hear, or touch came from light, not so much our sun, but from a supernova someplace, it's only appropriate we discuss light and now how it can be used for healing. Well, what happened, sir, that, you know, I was during a period of forced rustication in the country, uh, in between divorces and marriages, which uh, neurosurgery does take its toll in that regard. Uh, I took a couple of books with me to a small country place where I had a peaceful view of the ocean and a waterfall and a valley and the music you played during the break I, I think that's from a video, a high-definition video about Hawaii, and it's absolutely beautiful music and a video. That's correct, and, and you have just won $30,000 for that. Oh, right. Thank you, and the video, please. Okay. It's a great video, <laughs> and it reminds me of the, the, the feeling I had when I was in that country house, even though I was going through a, a divorce and separation, things like that. There was no TV set in the living room, just the sound of the waterfall and a chance to read and study. So patients are so kind in a way. They gave me uh, they give me books often, and I took two books with me: The Secret Life of Plants, and also a book called Into the Light by Dr. Gary Douglas, published in 1986. And I thought it was a good chance for me to sit down and read the books. Well, I first began with The Secret Life of Plants, and as you well know, I, there was some interesting things in there, also Dr. from Dr. Carver to the fact that plants and vegetables and fruits emit light primarily in the ultraviolet range. And 
I had never heard about this, and also more importantly was the result, the work of Cleve Baxter, the lie detector expert who hooked a lie detector to a draconia plant one day. And uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this story, but this oh, certainly, one. certainly. Okay, but so, please, please share it there with our listeners. Okay, what happened and what struck me as being astounding about this is that one day, uh, as he was looking at this plant, he had the galvanometer on the table, and he said, "Let me hook it to a leaf." and see if I water this plant, do I get some reaction on this meter? And not much happened. And Then he thought, well, perhaps I'll dip this leaf in this cup of hot coffee I have here, and there was a little bit of reaction, not much. Then he looked at it, and he thought to himself, uh, let me get some kitchen matches and come back and burn that leaf, and right away that needle spiked. And he realized that this plant had picked up on his intention to do it harm. And this led to more sophisticated experiments. For example, a row of uh, mechanical arms that could dump a Petri dish containing uh, water into a hot pot of boiling water. And uh, several of these were set up in a room with a plant and uh, hooked to such machine to record these electrical impulses. In the adjoining room, another plant so, so wired. And in some of these Petri dishes, he put brine shrimp. The others were just pure water. But every time a brine shrimp was about to be dumped, they, they saw a reaction uh, on the instrumentation. So that made me realize this saying, uh, housewives talk to your plants, has some meaning, because uh, plants and people that have their green thumbs seem to do better, and Dr. Carver certainly had that thumb with his work with plants. But after that, I said, well, that's all interesting, very interesting, but wh- why, why am I reading this book? So I picked up the second book, Into the Light, and it was about uh, ways to treat patients with light, to treat the blood with light, and in particular, phospholuminescence. And Dr. Douglas uh, had been working with this where uh, blood is drawn from uh, a vein, and it's run through a chamber of light uh, surrounded, you know, quartz crystals uh, and glass, and ultraviolet lights around this and illuminating the blood. And only 150 cc's were run through this apparatus and returned to the patient. But they found that many diseases were being cured. Some claimed to cure various cancers, but infections and so forth. And then penicillin came on the scene, uh, and then everyone discarded this and said they have a miracle drug. Well, Dr. Douglas researched this, used it in his practice, and then uh, wrote a book about his work and what he reviewed. And I thought that was extraordinary, too, that the cells of the body emit light in the ultraviolet range, and now we know in the visible range, too, with the new instrumentation we have today, uh, thanks to astronomy, the single photon detectors and so forth, we know that the body emits light, all the cells of the body, and in particular from the hands, and in particular from the hands, the fingertips and fingernails Mm -hmm. emit light. So I said, now this is all interesting. I never heard about this in medical school. We know that light is used to treat jaundice. It's used to help convert to, to vitamin D in the skin and things like that, but never emitting light. And uh, the next thing that happened on a plane ride uh, back from visiting the mainland, I was sitting next to a lady getting her Ph.D. in horticulture. And I said, do you know about this plant? She said, oh, of course we know that. We know, for example, Hawaii, Big Island is called the Orchid Isle. There's so many species of wild orchids, and we know that orchids emit this tractor beam of ultraviolet light. And when the bee hits that, he just zeroes right in on that uh, plant. See, we know all about that. So the next thing that happened, Doctor, uh, is the day came when Father Damien's hand returned, returned to Hawaii and to Molokai Island. And on that day, unbeknownst to me, I had finished the surgical case, and I was, I was standing in the hallway. For some strange reason, I decided I would have to pick the direction to go to see a patient. I could have gone equally left or right, but for some reason I'm looking down the hall to the right, and I said, this this is calling me today. I've never done this before. I went down there to see a young lady, Katie Kurosara, the ward clerk, uh, leaving the door on her way to the bathroom, and I would have missed her the other way. But she looked at me and she said, Doctor, Doctor, did you get that folder from uh, about uh, Moa? And I looked at her because that word Moa, in Hawaiian, it means chicken, but uh, I had heard that word two years before in surgery. A nurse behind me said, Dr. Turner, have you heard the word moa? And when I turned around, she had her palm, her hand outstretched and her palm facing me. She said, people that heal without touching. I said, who are these people? She said, well, 
they've been doing this for almost 50 years in Hawaii, in Hilo. Mm-hmm. I said, no, I'm afraid I haven't. And two years later, in the hallway, Dr. Ronimus, I'm being asked, have you heard the word moa? And I said, wow, why? She said, well, Dr. Uh, Mr. Kikuchi dropped a package off for you, doctor, and at your office, and after you've uh, finished looking at it, could you give him a call? I remember the package and a stack of journals and other take-home things I had to read, and I said, well, tell your friend, Mr. Kikuchi, that I'll look through that stuff if it's about that word moa, and I'll get back to him in a couple weeks. Well, I took it back to the country with me, uh, Bob, and uh, I opened it up, and the first thing I pulled out was an article about nature farming and about how this man, Mokichi Okada, taught farmers in Japan how to use green manure uh, rather than uh, animal manure, and how to use uh, bees, for example, imported to uh, cultivate flowers and and plants and crops and not have to use pesticides. And he felt, from his experience, this is less for the body to detoxify. Well, that made good sense. Uh, The next thing I pulled out, uh, along with a friend who was reading this with me, was an article on art and beauty and flowers and the importance of flowers and how Okada said if every jail cell just had one flower, uh, it would be a different place for the prisoners and make eventually a different world. So flower arranging, the appreciation of art and beauty was very important, according to Okada, to uplift the spirit. And in Hakone and Atami, Japan, he was able to collect art so it wouldn't be locked up in the homes of art collectors so the public could come and view great works of art, and those are truly spectacular places. And the third thing was about Jorei, G-O-H-R-E-I, which means, as I mentioned, uplifting of the spirit, a way to emit a spiritual, physical light from the palm of the hand. And in a way, this is a use of universal energy, but in this case, this energy was directly linked to Mr. Okada, who during his enlightenment, Bob, he received what he called a four-centimeter sphere of energy that lodged within his abdomen and from that day on, all of the attempts he had made to heal were really successful. And he was able to heal, and it didn't have to really touch anyone to do it. He found that 32 centimeters was an optimal distance to be away from the patient and to let this energy flow to certain spots for various diseases, which he cataloged and taught people how to do. And he said, you know, this is certainly a metaphysical event that's happened to me. But if I write the kanji, Japanese character for light, which is known as hikari, and give it to a person, if they have this with them, it will link them with a spiritual cord, and they'll be able to emit this God-given light that I have. He said, I have enough for a million people, and they can see healing for themselves. They don't have to have faith, and the recipient doesn't have to believe in anything. Just let the energy flow. So I began to work with this group, and I work with them today, the first and third Sundays of the month. We have a clinic here on this city and in other places on the island and around Hawaii, and now spreading to the mainland. Because, to conclude this, uh, Mokichi Okada predicted before he died in 1955 that East would meet West as far as blending Eastern and Western medicine, but it would have to begin in Hawaii at the turn of the century. And he had never visited Hawaii personally but he knew the importance of this area. So that's how I came across the secret life of plants, the power of plants, and light. But soon we're going to get into some of your cases, which truly are extraordinary. Uh, but uh, one, of the, one of the phrases that you mention in the book on page 180 is, we are beings of light who have manifested in physical form. That is one of the best descriptions of who we are that I've ever read. Um, and you noted something um, of extraordinary significance occurred in um, 1998, the discovery that the universe is not only expanding away from us, but has entered a phase of acceleration in its expansion. I'm so glad that you mentioned this. But what does this imply? Well... I had the fortunate opportunity of meeting uh, Alan Guth, who uh, was the man who was behind that acceleration of the universe. And he was in Hilo, of all places, giving a lecture at the university. And my oldest son had mentioned to me, Dad, Dr. Guth is going to be here, and I know you like cosmology and cosmogony and all that. You might want to go with me to attend. 
So I did, and afterwards I was able to uh, go into a small group of people who were asking questions, and I said, Dr. Goose, you know, extraordinary thing. I said this acceleration of, ex- of the universe's expansion, and it seems somehow correlated with the onset of human intelligence when this began. I said, do you feel that this acceleration is spurred on by a negative type of gravitational force, uh, the dark energy or something? And I remember how he smiled at me. Uh, Of course, I was asking a question that was actually way over my head, and I think he realized that. But he said, uh, that possibly could be so. So the significance of it to me is that this acceleration began about the time that human consciousness began. And how did that come about? Was it, as Julian Jaynes says, the bicameral man, and how we began hearing voices in our minds, and this developed a consciousness, or... Was it just lying dormant for this period of time or what? And then it gets into the complexities that we could discuss about parallel universes and how this all came to be and what it means. And that will take us into dreaming and is this life but a dream? And as Einstein said, is what we know just one grand illusion because the brain is certainly capable of rendering everything for us and that after uh, that stops, what happens? Well, I tried to investigate that in cases of brain death where it appeared that consciousness did not stop, that it was spread more widely throughout the body, perhaps in an organ external to the body. So I think my best answer for you at this point, Dr. Anonymous, is the significance of the acceleration is somehow tied to the evolution of human consciousness. Well, there are so many cases that I'd like to start with, uh, but let's... uh what, Jack? When, yes. Did you say something? I said Jack, yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, the one that um, I'd like to start with first because it really grabbed me. Well, there are a lot of them that did. But the mysterious case of Mrs. L-U-K, Dom Luke. Uh, how did karmic understanding lead her to end her hate that was at the root of illness? This is remarkable. Well, it was remarkable for me, and I think most physicians and maybe most people have seen a case of spontaneous healing. And it does happen, and we know it happens, and when it does, uh, sometimes it's just chalked up to one of those things. But I was fortunate to be intimately involved with this patient and the family, and it happened like this. I met a man who injured his head, slight head injury with a laceration, and uh, he preferred to leave it unsutured. And uh, he was a black man from Nashville, Tennessee, and he was also a Zen priest. He had spent years in a Zen monastery. And he was well-known in Hilo, it turns out, because he was always talking about basically karma and doing the right thing and how to lead a real spiritual life and to give up bad habits and bad ways. But when I met him, uh, he refused the sutures, and I said, well, why? This might heal with a scar. You know, your head is shaved. You keep it shaven for your religion, I guess, and uh, I don't think you want to have that scar. And he said, no, brother. He said, uh, I did something, I think, that caused this. And he said, this is my karma to have it heal whatever way it's going to heal. He said, thank you, but no thanks. I said, okay, John. I said, well, how are you going to get back to your car? And he said, well, I'll walk. I said, you're going to walk four miles at two or three in the morning. He said, yes. I said, look, come on. I said, I'm going that way. I said, let me drop you off. And, uh, he said, I can't ask you to do that. And I said, well, consider it your karma that I'm asking to do this. Well, that stopped him flat. He said, all right, and he smiled broadly. And as we left, we drove and we talked, and uh, John and I eventually became good friends. And I listened to his uh, teaching about karma, and I thought about what he was saying, and I thought there were ways I could improve things for sure. Well, one day uh, he came with a package of x-rays, and he came with a Vietnamese family, a lady and her daughters. And uh, as they went to the exam room, he asked if he could speak with me privately first. And I said, sure, John, come in. He pulled out the CAT scan of the brain, and it showed this uh, midline tumor. And I would say it was about the size. It was about the size of a lemon. And when I say midline, it was in an area called the corpus callosum, which has a million crossing fibers that connect both hemispheres of the brain. So it couldn't be removed. And it was obviously a malignancy. And I said, John, this is your friend. You say, I'm really sorry because uh, malignant tumors eventually at some point going to uh, rapidly expand and take your life. I said, here's what I can offer. I can carefully do a biopsy. 
uh, you know, by going down between the halves of the brain, taking a small sample, and once we have the diagnosis firm that it's malignant, they can start radiation. But I'm afraid that's, you know, that may give her a little extra time, but it can't cure the tumor. So he, he didn't say anything. He went with me to talk to the patient, and quite obviously she was worried. And I explained the surgery and my recommendation, and they agreed. And the surgery went fine. She had no problem at all, and they came back uh, to discuss the radiation therapy. And this time she came back with uh, seven monks from Vietnam wearing the yellow or uh, saffron-colored robes, and they had juzu beads. Uh, I learned later they were called prayer beads. And I explained everything and said that in six weeks I will see them back and uh, we'll take another look at a scan. And as they left, John called me aside and he said, Now listen, brother, uh, I want to tell you something. He said, Now, I know by the look on your face, you probably think they came to pray for her, don't you? I said, well, it looks that way to me, John. I mean, people that carry those beads and they're, you know, beautiful monks, what can I tell you? He said, it's not that at all. He said, I want you to know something. They came to work with her on a karmic disturbance. He said, she has had intense hatred for a lady friend of hers, and they feel that because of this, she has developed a dis-ease in her body. This has led to the brain tumor. And to overcome it, she has to deal with this karmic problem and resolve it. And what they plan to do is to take her on guided meditations, doctor. They'll take her through the seven hell worlds to show her what could be in store should she succumb to this tumor. Well, uh, I wish them all the best, and in six weeks when they came back, uh, we met in the room with the follow-up scan. And when I put it on the board, Dr. Bob, I was amazed to see that there was no tumor. In fact, I thought it was the wrong patient. It looked clean. And I called the radiologist, and I said, wait a minute. Uh, is this this lady's tumor? And I spelled the name and her birth, date of birth, and I saw it had my name on it as the ordering physician. He said, yes, it is. He said, take a look. You can see where you did your surgery in the bone. But he said, I was amazed, too. There's no tumor. And I said, this is a first. And I was absolutely amazed. And I, I told the family, and they took it matter-of-factly, and they thanked me for all that I had done. And I told them I'd like to do another follow-up scan at some point in time, but they assured me that that wouldn't be necessary. So the last I know that she uh, she lived for several more years and returned to Vietnam. And that's why I said it was an amazing case. And her name was Nam Luc, is what I have in the book. And as I said, either this was a case of true healing or the most amazing damn luck I had ever seen. <laughs> it was truly an astounding case. Yes, it was. All right, we'll take our final break of this hour uh, with our guest, uh, Dr. Jack. Well, actually, we're going to call him Dr. John L. Turner because you need to find his book. You're not going to find his book if you go look for Dr. Jack, okay? Dr. John L. Turner, Medicine, Miracles, and Manifestations, A Doctor's Journey Through the Worlds of Divine Intervention. Hello, this is Ingo Swan, the author of Penetration, The Question of Extraterrestrial and Human Telepathy. And you're listening to the wonderful 21st Century Radio with the amazing Dr. Bob Hieronymus. Our guest is Dr. John L. Turner, who now is known to us as Dr. Jack. The book is Medicine, Miracles, and Manifestations, A Doctor's Journey Through the Worlds of Divine Intervention, Near-Death Experiences, Universal Energy, New Page Books. You think we've repeated it enough? I hope so, because you should get two or three copies of this book. You're going to need it. If you lend it to someone, you're not going to get it back. So the best thing to do is have a couple spare ones around the house. Don't you think that's a good way of doing it, John or Jack? Well, I think it's kind of you to say so, sir, and I'm glad you enjoyed the book, and I hope others will, but I would say that they should go to the website first and look at a chapter summary, see if it's something that they really want. Uh, And if so, uh, I think it would be a a good thing, like you say. But one important reason, and not the only one for sure, is why we were determined to have you join us. We had to postpone three or four times, and I really was... uh, You were so patient. God bless you for that. We really appreciated that. Uh, We just had one media thing to do after another, and it really got in our way. But... Uh, Jack, uh, our dear friend and co-worker, Rosemary Clark, and uh, her life partner, Gary Lyon, how did the the book she lent you, The Temple and Man by Shrala uh, Delubich, why was this book linked uh, to linked her to her successful healing? 
Well, Doctor, if you have a little time, I think I need to describe her story in a little bit of detail because there are so many deep connections, uh, starting with her husband, Gary Lyon. And uh, one day I saw a note, another, I would call this note a missive, not a message. It was a missive because it was a little bit cryptic. Uh, Mr. Gary Lyon, spelled L-Y-O-N, would like to discuss something with you. <laughs> I had never heard of this person, but I uh, told Leilani, uh, my office manager, I said, well, put him in at the noon hour. I, I'll be happy to see what, what, he, what he would like. Maybe I can help him with something. And this young man showed up, a very handsome young man with a red hair and, a, and tied back in a ponytail. And he came with him, he brought with him a package of beetle nuts. And he asked me if I was familiar with that. I said no, and he showed me how to wrap it in a lime leaf and told me the story of it. And as he sat down, he, he put on my desk this a cassette recorder. And he said, Doctor, uh, my wife, uh, Rosemary Clark, has illustrated the, a book called The Traveler's Key to Ancient Egypt. And we're preparing a slideshow. And uh, I'd like you to hear the music I've done because I hear that you have a recording studio, Doctor. And I need the facilities, and I'll pay you for this, he said, but I need to be able to mix this down from a four-track to a good two-track uh, tape. Well, when he hit the switch to play it, and I heard those sounds of ancient Egypt, and I know you're familiar with his work, and it was just beautiful. And I said, well, Gary, you, you did this music. He said, I did it myself. I said, well, where would you get a gong like that? And he said, would you believe it's the top of a, of a tin can lid, you know, a big can uh, out in the uh, outside and behind the house. I mic'd it with a mic, and I said, wow, that's amazing. You're a very innovative young man. So I said, what's the name of that book again? He said, The Traveler's Key. And I reached in my pocket, Bob, and I took the key off my key ring. I said, well, here's your key, Gary. <laughs> I said, this is the key to my studio. I told him where my house was, and it was was in the joining, what used to be the garage, and I said, I'm hardly there. You see, I'm always working here. and You can use it whenever you like. I said, do, do what you can. And he said, well, that's great, doctor. And he said, you know, we'd like to talk with you more. Uh, we understand you've done some Buddhist chanting and so forth. We'd like to know more, and I'd like you to meet my wife. So I went to their home uh, that evening or the next evening to meet Rosemary Clark. And then I found out when she said, oh, Dr. Turner, I want you to know I made a magic mirror for you. I said, what is that? And she showed me this, a uh, small uh, copper-colored, you know, bronze mirror type of thing. And she said, I think you'll find this handy. And she told me about her interest in ancient Egypt. Uh, and it went way back. And we talked about all kind of things new to me about Egypt. And we made plans to keep in touch. Gary worked in the studio, and one day she said, I've got a book for you, the book you mentioned by Swaller de la Bush, called, de la Bush, called The Temple in Man, about the great temple of Luxor. Jack, we got, said, about, Jack, we got about three minutes, so I just wanted you to pace yourself here. All right, sir. The, this book uh, was about how the temple was laid out according to the human body. And she said, I think you'll find it especially interesting when you read about the brain. I said, well, Rosemary, that's great. Thank you very much. And I started to read the book, and time passed. And about a year later, it was time for me to take my oral board examination in neurosurgery. It was going to be held in Salt Lake City, and I took a month off to study. But one interesting thing I studied was what kind of thing could they ask me with neurology, neurosurgery, neurophysiology? What kind of thing could they try to really trip me up on? And I realized it was something called bilateral aneurysms of the cavernous sinus. That's an area deep within the brain on each side that's very difficult to operate on. I've never had a case, but I was able to study. I devoted one day to study the treatment for that type of a lesion. And I said, if they hit me with that and I can get through that, I said, there's nothing they can stump me on. So that's what happened. And then later, uh, things progressed in a very interesting manner, Bob. And after the break, we can discuss that, and it will show you how that book came into play. Well, we still have uh, about another minute and a half. All right, minute and a half. I received a call from Rosemary, and she said, Jack, I've got a question. I, I've got, I noticed a droop of my eyelid. I think it was the right eye. Then she said, can you tell me, what, what do you think is happening? She said, and a pain that feels behind my eye. And I said, go to the mirror, Rosemary, and tell me, open your lid, lift it up, and tell me is the pupil center of your eye normal like the other side, or is it smaller or larger? Well, she came back to say, you know, Jack, I think it's a little bit larger. She said, do I have a brain tumor or what? I said, no, no, relax. So 
said, you're a little young for that, but there's some evidence there's pressure on one of the nerves to the eye. I'm going to set you up in Honolulu, where you live now, to get a scan from my friend at a clinic there, and let's see what's going on. I would suggest you call him and do this right away. So she set that up, and uh, she called me back later uh, when the scan was done to say, yes, they found a mass in her brain, and they've scheduled her for an angiogram. And I said, well, good luck with that. I hope all the best for you. And she said, well, by the way, could you return that book by Bush?" She said, I'm writing a book now myself, Jack, and I need to use that for research. I said, I'll find that. I'll be happy to mail it back. I wrapped it up and mailed it back to her. And that's when we come up to the break, I believe. Yes, indeed. Hey, you hit that right on the head, Jack. (laughs) We'll return with our guest, Dr. No pun intended, Rosemary, but yes. Dr. John L. Turner, Medicine, Miracles, and Manifestations, A Doctor's Journey Through the Worlds of Divine Intervention, Near-Death Experiences, and Universal Energy, published by New Page Books. Buy three or four of them, and then if you you hit the jackpot, buy half a dozen. And there they go, Slim and the Supreme Angels. What a group! Lord harmonies, 12-part harmonies out of four people. You try to do that. That's something extraordinary. And our guest uh, for the next 25 minutes is Dr. John L. Turner. The book is Medicine, Miracles, and Manifestations, A Doctor's Journey Through the Worlds of Divine Intervention, Near-Death Experiences, and Universal Energy, published by New Page Books. Now, we were talking about the, the return of the book called The uh, Temple of Man to Rosemary Clark, who needed it. She said she needed it. Um, what did she need it for? told me that she was in the process of writing a book herself, and she needed it as part of her research uh, in the topic she was going to cover on ancient Egypt. And I said, well, you know, I've had that book for a year. I apologize for that. I read parts of it, but I'll, I'll certainly send it back. I understand your need. So I wrapped it in brown paper, and I mailed it back to her. And I told her, I said, well, after this is all settled with your case, and let me know what comes out. You're going to do an angiogram. I'd like to know more about that, and all the best to you. So after mailing the book, uh, what happened, uh, I guess a few days went by, and she called to tell me the results of the angiogram. And she said, Jack, now let me tell you a little story. She said, uh, on the evening before the angiogram, I believe, she said, I woke up suddenly because I heard your voice in my ear as clear as a bell, and you said to me, Rosemary, it's located at the transept of the temple. She said she awoke with a start, turned on the uh, bedside lamp, and there on the table was the book I had mailed back, still wrapped in the brown paper. So she opened it up and looked up the transept of the temple, and she was amazed to see it was the cavernous sinus. And she told them before the angiogram that next day, she said, fellas, I know what you're going to find. You're going to find that I have an aneurysm in the cavernous sinus. And they kind of smiled and said, well, sure, lady, and wondered how would she know about the cavernous sinus. They weren't sure what this lesion was, but it turned out that's exactly what she had, something called a giant aneurysm, mm. which is very prone to bleed uh, and in a very difficult position. And strangely enough, it's what I had spent the one day studying not too long before that. Very strange, but that's not the strangest part, uh, Dr. Bob. What happened was I had to go to that same clinic uh, to assist on a surgical case. And while I was there, I called the x-ray department. I said, will you kindly put uh, Rosemary Clark's angiogram up on the board for me? I'd like to look at all those films, if you don't mind. They said, certainly, certainly. So when I went down to look at those, by the way, an angiogram is the blood flow through all the arteries of the brain as the blood comes in, uh, up the neck, in the head, and out over a period of a few seconds. So you get a series of films. And as they came up on the alternator, I saw this, menacing-looking thing, like a tarantula. And a word came into my mind, and that word was hosabushi. Now, can you guess what that means in Japanese, Dr. Bob? Well, of course, you read the book, so you know. But I forgot. That's the surname of uh, Dr. Hosabushi at San Francisco. Uh, That's right. I I knew it all the time. Yeah, I didn't know when the name came. I went home, and when I got back to Hilo, I looked through those books, Cavernous Sinus, that I had read for that day of study, and sure enough, there was a paper by Dr. Yoshio Hosobuchi and his seven cases of cardiac standstill, in which he stopped the blood flow, cooled the patient's body, so that without any blood flow to the brain, they could go in and actually 
directly repair that aneurysm, which is in a place fraught with nerves to the eye and a lot of a venous, a venous plexus. And if the aneurysm would ever rupture in that, that would be death. And the way they had planned to do this uh, in Honolulu was the standard way because they weren't sure exactly where it was located. So I said, Rosemary, listen, if I were you, I would pack up your films and at least mail them off and ask for opinion for Dr. Hosobushi. And here's how you do that. And I gave the address and so forth. Well, she called me kind of out of breath one day and said, you know, Saturday morning, Dr. Hosobushi called an emergency call for me. And he said, please, I urge you to come to San Francisco and let me do my new procedure. Because if you have this operated upon in the standard way most neurosurgeons would approach it, it will probably rupture. And uh, she agreed. And she went to San Francisco, had the surgery, and with the resulting only that continued droop of her eye. And it was just strictly amazing. And then many, many years passed. She did extremely well. She not only finished her book, uh, The Sacred Tradition in Ancient Egypt, but went on to write several more. And uh, as I mentioned to many uh, friends, uh, she kindly dedicated that book to me. And although she feels I was instrumental in this, I think it was Egypt, ancient Egypt, and her love of it that came to her rescue, not me. Something else came to her aid, and uh, that something else in the way of dreams and astral travel, uh, I'm not sure, but at any rate, it worked out great for her. Well, it certainly did, and uh, her and her husband are just terrific folks. We just had the best of times when we were with them, and Virginia, I just love being in Virginia. It's just a lovely state. Now, you quote Albert Einstein a couple of times, and one of the, on page 204, and friends, if you have a copy of this book, look it up yourself. Here, go to page 204. Why do you think that Albert Einstein thought that Buddhism was the religion that would cope or could cope with modern scientific needs? Well, I think because my, this book, a little small story of my travels in my life, I end it with a chapter called Now and Zen you notice that kind of a play on words. I love that one, yeah. And the reason for that is that of everything I've tried, you know, I I tried all these different spiritual paths that you read about. The Ekankar, the ancient science of soul travel uh, for learning. I tried the Buddhist chanting, the Namihol Rengekyo, various things, trying to find out how do we reach this apex point of the tree of life, which we began our discussion by saying, that could be the point of acceptance and understanding of unconditional love. Well, Zen Buddhism is such an interesting thing because unlike uh, traditional types of Buddhism, it doesn't require any prayers, it doesn't require following any particular path, and there are really no words to explain what it is. And if it could be put into words, it would be one word, which is thus. Things are as they are because this is the way it is. And if we can learn to live in the moment, and to fully appreciate everything from moment to moment as we learn these lessons which we have ourselves planned to go through, then life can be very rich and rewarding, and hopefully our next go-around will be even more rewarding and more interesting and less fraught with difficult situations. Mm-hmm. So it's all a matter of learning. And I think anyone who tries to realize how monumental this universe is, well, to give an example, the number of stars, in the Milky Way galaxy has been quoted as anywhere from 100 to 200 billion, sometimes more, but let's say 100 billion stars. And it's interesting that the neurons in the cortex of the brain and cerebellum also total about 100 billion. And also, if you were to count, if it was possible to count all the grains of sand on all the beaches on this world, it is also that figure of 100 billion. And as we know, that's a number that's hard to comprehend how large it is. The number of known particles in the universe, I I state a figure, is 10 to the 75th power. And as the listeners know, 10 squared is 100, 10 cubed is 1,000, and so forth. But if you think about how many zeros on 10 to the 75th, it's just extraordinary, right? Right. Talking, doctor, about all the electrons, the protons, the quarks, whatever the particles are in the universe. But that pales in comparison to the human brain. Because of those 100 billion neurons, that are just in the cortical layer alone, the brain is a powerful processor. And it's estimated that the connections between those neurons and perhaps between astrocytes, the supporting cells, the possible connections they could make 
is 10 to the 10 millionth power. So with that in mind, it's kind of easy to see why, as I sit here talking to you, I'm looking at two computer screens. They look normal. You know, they probably give me some electromagnetic radiation a little bit. I pick up the pencil, mechanical pencil. It feels a certain weight and consistency. But everything's kind of manufactured by the brain. And I think one of Einstein's quotes when he said, this is one great illusion, is true. I mean, it's all created for us. And to say how it all works, I think Einstein realized that to try to explain this is fraught with all kinds of difficulties. It's just an exercise that may be getting us nowhere. It may be way beyond our comprehension. And maybe the best way to look at it is the Zen way, to say thus. Well, uh, the few pages later on, you note that you believe that to live in the moment and always do the right thing is the best course of action in life. Why do you believe that? Well, here's the thing. Thinking about things, of course, I can't take credit for that. Spike Lee in his movie, uh, uh, the mayor of the, of the town, was always saying, Doctor, do the right thing. And if someone is consciously trying to direct things, and, you know, we know perhaps right from wrong, even though this may be written as a script, during that 200 millisecond period where we can interfere with what's going on, if we're conscious enough to not do the wrong thing, everything is fine. And, you know, people have thought this for, for years and years. And uh, one thing I'd like to give credit to is the Greek philosopher Epictetus who was born a slave in Greece in 53 A.D. and suffered from a broken knee that was done intentionally, but it didn't break his spirit, and he became a great philosopher eventually. And what the quote that I'm fond of is one in particular is a three-part quote, Dr. Bob. And if, if I may, I'd like to state that here. Please do. It begins with the first part saying, to accuse others for one's own misfortune is a sign of want of education. The second part is to accuse oneself shows that one's education has begun. But the third part is the heavy, meaningful part that says to accuse neither oneself nor others shows that one's education is complete. And I think it's like my viewpoint now and Epictetus's viewpoint and perhaps Einstein's viewpoint that, look, this is the way it is and this is the way things are going to go. And it's not a matter of placing blame or, or doing dastardly things. It's a matter of learning and realizing that we're here to learn and making the very best of it. And in doing that, we're going to naturally do the right thing. Well, I got two more questions for you. I actually have 22 more, but, but we're going to focus on two of them. The first, oh, before I do that, since you mentioned Greek philosophers, can you recall which of the philosophers said all things are vibration? No, not offhand. All things are vibration. It was certainly, as you say, a Greek philosopher. Yeah, and I, unfortunately, I can't remember. Uh, it may have been, no, it's not Anaximandes or Anaximandes. Well, uh, it wasn't Heraclitus. We know that. And it wasn't, well, it doesn't matter. But some, one of these days I'm going to remember because it was my high school teacher in, at City College uh, that actually taught us all about all the Greek philosophers. And and uh, every time I think of that quote, because vibrations obviously are important. But well, as you know, that's a, what you know people refer to a new age thought. That's certainly the way it's thought that we're on certain vibrational levels. Mm -hmm. These uh, things that we can't see, perhaps these stages of the afterlife, are all here with us now, present with us, but on a different vibrational level. Yeah, well, but I'm not sure about that particular quote that may have started it all, but certainly this is what people that I know think. Well, we know the Greeks didn't know what they were talking about, right? I mean, you know, what the heck. <laughs> well, they knew about tragedy. <laughs> However, this you have a most important appendix. And of course, we're talking about your book. Um, and that is, friends, this is, this is worth the, the price of the book. Where is the mind located in the brain? And uh, obviously, we got about four or five minutes, and I really would prefer to end on this note. Could you uh, discuss this for us? Well, i like to try. And I begin that uh, appendix, uh, you know, with, with a quote from Colin Wilson. And if I may, for those people who don't have this little chapter handy, to read that. It, 
The appendix is called The Mind, and the quote is this. I had been assuming that man is limited because his brain is limited, that only so much can be packed into the portmanteau. But the spaces of the mind are a new dimension. The body is a mere wall between two infinities. Space extends to infinity outward. The mind stretches to infinity inward. And I believe that this whole idea of where is the mind, where is the brain, where is the seat of the soul, this appendix was written at the behest of Robert Bruce, who wrote the great book Astrodynamics 10 years ago and many subsequent other books. And when I met him through the Internet, in a way that you and I have met, uh, he told me he was writing a book on the, on the mechanics of astral projection, and would I mind writing a little bit about the mind and where it's located with within the brain. And at that time, I said, sure, you just let me know when you need it. Well, about the time uh, Rosemary delivered a copy of her book to me, I was busy trying to write my book when Robert said, you know, in another month or so, I'll need that, that chapter. Well, I said, all right, sir. And I, I, I stopped my thing, and I started studying the, what I could research on consciousness, the mind, and so forth, and I put together this appendix. And it turned out that uh, Frank DeMarco, the editor of Hampton Roads that published Robert's book, felt that his book was too lengthy to include this, so I was able to use it for my book because the subject matter was good. It, is the mind and is consciousness located within the brain, or, or how does this work? And in the book, there's a story of a, of a patient who was brain dead, but somehow was able to, I felt, consciously guide what was happening with her family and events concerning her. And also, there's a case of Dr. Robert Spetzler I discuss in the book, who kindly wrote the foreword for my book. And as you probably know, Dr. Spetzler is one of the top neurosurgeons in the United States, if not the world, and for him to take the time to review my humble manuscript a couple times is certainly amazing. But he had a case of a lady named Pam Reynolds. And during that case, it was the same surgery that our friend Rosemary Clark had, the cardiac standstill to repair a lesion. And during the time that there was no blood flow to her brain, that there were no EEG signals being recorded or evoked potentials, the brain was isoelectric, we call it, no electroactivity, she was able to report things that she observed or heard that went on in the operating room during that time, a typical, in the way, kind of an out-of-the-body experience. I ran into Dr. Spetzler at a conference, I believe, 1997 or eight. And I said, Bob, I have a question. You know, I'm impressed by that case of yours. Pam Reynolds has been in New Reader's Digest. It's been on PBS. And I just have a question for you, sir. I said, now, before that experience with this patient, were you aware of out-of-the-body experiences, near-death experiences, and astral projection? He looked at me, and he said, Jack, absolutely not. He said, and I find it amazing that the brain could produce such hallucinations when it is electrically silent. Hmm. Well, the implication is that this consciousness, and perhaps the mind too, exists in another place, uh, throughout the body perhaps, widespread in all the cells. And it could exist in another organ. And it could be even more complicated. It could interweave through us all as we're all one person. Mokichi Okada mentioned the, the spiritual cords that would tie people to him. Hawaiians talk about aka, a.k.a. cords, which are strongest between family members, but tie us all together. Perhaps this, this consciousness is there in what Ed Dames called the matrix or the collective unconsciousness of Carl Jung. Perhaps it's always here with us and always around, and we're not able to localize it within the brain. So in this chapter, I try to review a little bit of the experimental research and some of the thoughts on the mind and the brain. But I don't think there's going to be a definite answer to this because it may be something that we just are not able to understand because we don't have the brain power, so to speak, to comprehend such a magnificent thing. Well, why so, don't you do a little bit more research and come back next week and then see if you can figure it all out? <laughs> I'll come back at any time because I love <laughs> talking about these subjects. And I want to thank you for your kind comments about this book. And, and I really appreciate that. Well, we want to thank you for serving our planet so well. Um, this obviously is going to be the kind of book that so many people will be able to use and gain hope through. And uh, it's course, friends. It's uh, called Medicine, Miracles, and Manifestations, A Doctor's Journey Through the Worlds of Divine Intervention 
near-death experiences, and universal energy, new page books. Order uh, only 10 or 15 books. and so, so next time you go to class, you can lend a few out there. Your friends will love you for it. That's how, guys, that's about the best way in the world to pick up a girl. Just give them one of these books and they'll know what you're talking about. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Jack. And thank you, sir. My pleasure. Our pleasure. 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Cortner. I'm Dr. Bob Hieronymus, and remember, shine your shoes and get a haircut.